0: Hey, Take 3 listeners, it is Jordan here, and I first wanted to say that we here at Take 3 know that there are other podcasts you could be listening to during this period of isolation, but we do thank you for choosing ours. I'm sure that you are well aware of the state of the world at the moment, and there's a lot of what-ifs and unknowns and how-do-I-know-what-to-trust happening right now. And I wanted to offer just a bit of relief before we start this episode. I am an avid listener of the podcast called This Week in Virology, or TWIV for short. Uh, And if you're looking for a trustworthy source, TWIV releases weekly episodes covering updates with COVID-19. They pride themselves on putting data first and sort of dismantling conspiracy theories if they aren't backed up and they have a batch of experts from the field every week to deliver current events now the podcast usually focuses on discussing like current events with epidemiology and virology but over the last few weeks they've solely covered the coronavirus I trust them to provide the facts and recommendations on how to navigate this difficult time and you should definitely uh, give them a listen and you should tell them we sent you. Again, they are This Week in Virology. Pretty sure they're on all major podcast apps, uh, but they're also online at microbe.tv slash twiv. Again, that's microbe.tv slash t-w-i-v. Hope that helps. And uh, now I'll stop talking so you guys can listen to the episode. Thanks for your support, guys. Absolutely breathtaking. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that he's shirtless in this scene? No, I think he has his clothes on. I think he does have his, yeah. Doesn't sound like a very fun pool scene. (laughs) Hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do,
1: join in on the conversation.
0: This is Take Three, a movie podcast.
1: Take
0: one. So I am not sure that many people
1: even know that this movie exists, and that makes me sad. Me too. Definitely. I don't remember it doing particularly well either. This and Cabin in the Woods, I love how they take a genre and turn it on its head and use tropes to tell something that feels fresh. To me, obviously, read very much like Quentin Tarantino. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm a huge fan of Drew Goddard or Drew Goddard or however you pronounce it.
0: <laughs> what what else has he done?
1: Directed this and Cabin in the Woods.
0: Oh, that's okay. That's why you bring it up. Yeah. So I remember watching this with you in theaters for the first time. Like, I remember maybe like 10 or 15 minutes through leaning over to you and saying, this is so fucking cool. Yeah. Um. And I don't remember. It was for like one of our friends'
1: birthdays or something. I don't remember why we chose that specific movie to go see. We were going to Bush Gardens for the weekend. You said that to me, but then Mallory, who's my sister, was like, "This, I fucking hate this." You know what I mean? So I, I guess I understand how like certain people may not gravitate towards this, Mm -hmm. just because maybe it is a. I, I, I can't say it's like a slow burn.
0: No. I think, and well, it was strange because I, I had never heard of this movie before. I was kind of just going with the flow and everyone was like, hey, we're going to go see Bad Times at the El Royale. I was like, I've not seen a trailer for this. I've not even heard of this movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it seems like, seems like it could be fun. And then I watch it and my expectations are like blown away. Um, but yeah, I do remember, I think most of our friends really didn't enjoy
1: that movie as much as we did. Oh, no, I don't think any of them enjoyed it as much as we did. I don't understand that. Like, I I don't know. The payoff at the end is the only thing that I could see. Maybe losing some people, but like for me, I love that. I again, yeah. I'm I've watched this movie fifteen times since I, I saw it. Then, I, yeah, I I don't know exactly why it didn't catch on, but it, it definitely does feel like off the beaten path a little bit. Even though I again, it it does take a lot of the crime genre tropes and sort of deconstructs them the kidnap victim the the bank robber like quentin tarantino takes a genre and tries to do something that's fresh and inventive i don't know the specific word i'm looking for but it's almost as if like it was adapted from a, a book that's a good yeah exactly drew goddard is a brilliant writer he wrote the martian oh he wrote that yeah well, I assume the screenplay not the the book it was based off of a book yeah i know you wrote the um the screenplay mm-hmm. and while i don't want to like single any particular person out because i think this is like a true ensemble cast full of like brilliant performances from actors who are wholly underrated even though uh, some of them are are very celebrated my favorite character is without a doubt Dakota Johnson really okay i I love her so much. We'll talk more about her in take two, but
0: yep. look out for her because she's great. Cynthia Revo is incredible in this as well. John Hamm is in this. Hemsworth is in this. Um, Chris Hemsworth, yes. Chris Hemsworth is in this.
1: If, if, if you haven't seen this and you're kind of on the fence, the cast should be a draw. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. 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 Every, everybody is stellar. Even people that you don't recognize, you will recognize them going forward because they give really good performances. This is probably the most excited I've been in a while to like, oh, good. To watch one of these movies, yeah.
0: (laughs) And I hope that this inspires other people to go, I always say go see it, and you always make fun of me for saying
1: that, but to see it, especially now if we're in quarantine and you're looking for things to watch. Oh, can I just point out one thing? Sure. Uh, I'm like really excited to watch this movie. I watched it like 11 days ago. Did you really? Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it again.
0: You said that you've watched this movie like 15 times since it came out. I'm like, I don't even think I've seen it like four times since it came out.
1: I will put it on any time. Like, it's it's my feel-good movie. I just, yeah. It really makes (laughs) me happy. Yeah, I enjoy this movie a lot as well. All right, go watch it with us. Take two. That is the kind of movie I like to watch. Indeed.
0: Right off the bat, though, I will say I'm not thrilled with the ending. I don't think it's perfect watching it again but it's still really good i think it's still great i think it's the movie itself as a whole is absolutely incredible
1: what do you not like about this ending
0: it's just a little cheesy um it's as soon as as soon as he picks up the gun and then puts the gun down to go hug it's not emily what's her name rose Rose? rosie um he puts down the gun and that was a dumb move Like, why he didn't shoot her, too, I don't know. He has no reason to believe that she was dangerous. She just let
1: her boyfriend kill her own sister. I would have shot her dead. I genuinely just think that he was clearly traumatized by having to kill people again. He doesn't want to have to do that. And he sees this girl who's just crying and weeping. I think he did not anticipate that she was a danger.
0: Okay well, to me that's stupid
1: Yeah, <laughs> to me, i i
0: don't I don't agree with that and and I think the whole um him just sort of fading right after he's kind of forgiven i, I like that's kind of Hollywood death cheesy to me, but like i i I don't, I don't I can't really give an alternate ending. um there were just you know some cheesy parts, but like i I don't want this to to tarnish my view of the rest of the movie because it's absolutely incredible. it's absolutely phenomenal. I love this movie so goddamn much. And I forgot how much I loved this movie.
1: Yeah. The exterior shots of the hotel is the first thing I want to bring up when it's daytime, when it's nighttime, when it's storming. It's just such a gorgeous place. There's something um, about like that retro lighting and the way that it kind of glows. Mm -hmm. There were points in time, especially with uh, John Hamm's character, that it felt very like old detective story, very, very noir The attention to the way that this place looks, I don't know if it's a real place or if they constructed this set or they turned a hotel into this. I'm I'm very interested to find that out because it's just – it's like a gift from the um, location scout gods if they were able to find (laughs) something like this. Yeah, Um, yeah. And if if it wasn't that, then it was certainly a gift from the production design gods. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just really like that retro. I don't even know what, what era I'm talking about truly, but um, it's like 50s, 60s. Like
0: yeah. It's that,
1: but the production yeah. design and the way that this hotel mm-hmm. or this motel looks is just stunning to me. Mm-hmm. I do think
0: color plays a very important role in this movie. Yeah. Um, Cynthia Rivo's character is drowned in purple the entire time. Um, you know, California is one color, Nevada is another color. Each, I feel like each character kind of has their own aura each, each scene. Um, yeah. Um, and that's something that I really want to explore in take three as well as the production and, you know, seeing if the El Royale was an actual place or if it was based on a place that was, you know, split down the middle and, you know, existed in two states, uh, even if it wasn't just like that, I that idea in general is just so cool to me. And the way that they were able to play on this,
1: like Obviously, there's meaning there. Yeah, Um, and thank you for bringing that up because I – something I kind of just noticed this most recent time. Again, I've seen it so many times, but I love that they pay very close attention and uh, make sure to show everyone stepping over the line. Anytime anybody steps (laughs) over the line, they show you that Mm -hmm. Um, to the point where towards the end, you see Rosie just – like walking down the line like yeah. it's just a it's a, a shot in itself i think maybe that has to do with uh i guess
0: the the people sort of trying to quote unquote abide by the rules whereas rose is just sort of she doesn't care she's walking
1: she's teetering that line yeah that's a very good point. point two more things that i f- would feel bad if i didn't bring up a lot of people again compare this movie to Tarantino and I understand again the the comparisons there are uh, a lot of things that I think they both draw reference from and you know sudden bursts of violence and the really exquisite back and forths between the characters mm-hmm. but something that did feel very Quentin Tarantino and I think that he did it as good as Quentin Tarantino has ever done uh, was the long shot. The shot of John <laughs> Hamm walking down the corridor and finding each room and Cynthia Rivo yep. having to sing the entire time and choreographing what would happen in each room as he walked back and forth and the fact that, like, you don't even... You're seeing so many different little vignettes of the story and they certainly don't all make sense at the time. This is, like, the first time you're seeing that... There's something going on with the priest, and you don't know why he's tearing up the floor. Uh, mm-hmm. You clearly think that Emily is a bad guy, and she's kidnapped a poor innocent girl. You know, yeah. you have no idea what's what's truly going on, but you know, oh shit! This this hotel is fucked up, and um, <laughs> you know, you see the camera, and you're like, it's a magnet for secrets. This yeah, hotel, it's like absolutely. Yeah. And, like, the meaning of what happens in that shot along with the expert choreography that that goes into actually filming that. I mean, I cannot imagine how many times it took to actually get perfect. Sometimes I truly feel as if my taste just really don't align with many other people's tastes. Like, I'm (laughs) not necessarily, like, I'm special and I have this, like, interesting – You know taste but a lot of my favorite movies people don't like and I don't necessarily (laughs) know why because this is a movie that I you know didn't get like a great score on Rotten Tomatoes I don't know it yet but I don't I remember it not being like superb like it should be didn't even make its budget back when it came to shooting didn't even recoup the same amount that it took to make it much less make double to actually turn a profit so I don't know what happened but I do know that people should give this movie a chance. Hopefully you did.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it would be a crime not to bring up the scene that is like, I I feel like defines this movie is Cynthia Revo and Jeff Bridges in, in uh, Darlene's room, digging up the floorboard like that. Can't hurry. Love is so mind-blowingly good. And I think
1: the watch is worth it for that scene alone. Yeah. Um, the editing in that cutting yeah. between Jeff Bridges, Cynthia Revo, and Dakota Johnson. even
0: Dakota Johnson tapping her finger, yeah, exactly on the gun is just oh Chef's kiss,
1: wow, beautiful, love it, amazing, flawless. I, I remember I like was crying when I first saw that. Like it was <laughs> just, I mean, as an editor, that's like what you would hope to be able to do in a. <laughs> In a movie, you know what I mean? To be able to to have that wealth of footage and coverage and that wealth of like tension and story to be able to combine all of that and to be able to spit out something like this. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, their editor, that was a treat for the editor for <laughs> sure. This has been
0: on my mind for a while now. And if you're an avid follower of this podcast, you've absolutely heard us talk about We Explain Movies, the the girls, our aunts over at We Explain Movies. And I've always kept this in the back of my head to try and think of movies that i would want them to do and you know at first it was like oh let me pick from you know my, one of my top five or let me pick something that not a lot of people know or that they might enjoy and my first was away we go i think that, that would be a really cute movie for them to do but uh after five minutes of this movie and just the whole time i just kept thinking of oh my god i want the girls to do this movie like if if you were to ask me what movie i want them to do it's this one I think that would be such a cool episode, and I want them to watch it so, so fucking bad.
1: Oh yeah, me it. too. I'm
0: hoping, I'm hoping that at least one of them has not seen it yet. Um,
1: but yeah, that'd be that's that's my choice. That's a very good suggestion. I mean, the way that they go in depth. I think would put our take three to shame. I mean, like they, (laughs) I'm really, I mean, again, I'm looking forward to creating a take three that you all will like, but, um, I think the wealth of different storylines and characters, I don't know. I think it'd be really interesting to hear them talk about it too. For sure. Absolutely. absolutely. And I just, I just want to
0: share this movie. I just want to like push it on everyone and say, go watch this. Yeah,
1: Please. Let us know if you had heard of this movie, if you watched it between Take One and Two, like You're talking just anyone, not just the girls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyone. <laughs> I plea like I'm I'm genuinely curious if you guys have heard of this movie. I mean, I think we normally do pretty decently popular movies. This might be one of the ones that's not so popular. I mean, it just Still. came out like two years ago, right? Yeah. Two thousand seventeen? Two thousand what time when when did this movie come out? I'll know in take three. Yeah. (laughs) I'd say at least like two to three years ago. Yeah. Take three is like when we have our shit together. Take two, (laughs) we don't normally have our shit together. (laughs) Uh, But we appreciate you guys listening. (laughs) God, that movie was so good. Oh, I also do want to – I just want to point out something that I really – I really like. Sorry, we can end after this. So in this movie – as Billy Lee is approaching and then it cuts to him walking through the field and, you know, his mm-hmm. title card and all of that. Um, 1230 by the Mamas and Papas, which is like the young girls are walking through the canyon. Like that song. It's very yeah. – it just feels like the that kind of um, Manson-like, like walking through the valley with a bunch of people. <laughs> that it really does like it feels yeah. like that, and it's very uh, like the, it the, are the same people that sing California Dreamin'. I don't know their background, but it just feels very much like that. It fits, and mm-hmm. um, I was just watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other night, and the moment that the Manson killers the the group of people in the car drive up the hill at the at, towards the end of the movie like they're going to commit the the infamous Manson murders mm-hmm. um that song is also playing and i'm like that's perfect because <laughs> billy lee is clearly a very manson like figure yeah. and um i think it's you know i don't I, I wouldn't say that like Quentin Tarantino stole that idea or anything like that. I feel like that song just lends itself to this sort of story, uh, <laughs> this sort of culty. I'm going to look into that, see if um, the Mamas yeah. and Papas were cult were cult <laughs> members or not. I think it's just, it's very, I don't know the exact time period, but it's very like 60s, 70s. I'd like to talk about that as well. I don't normally talk about music, and I think that song I it's just is so catchy and is in my yeah. head and I want to learn more about it. Soundtracks and
0: scores to movies are so fucking important. They are yeah. they are paramount to movies and and this soundtrack is no exception. Like the the songs in this are incredible.
1: So the soundtrack was like obviously balls to the wall. I had the entire uh, soundtrack saved on my Spotify, my liked songs or whatever. This gives Guardians of the Galaxy a run for its money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy does have a really good one, but something I wanted to ask you is that like, do you do you feel like it, the soundtrack completely overshadowed uh, Giacchino's score? Michael Giacchino, Giacchino. What is the? You always tell me I pronounce it wrong. Giacchino. 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 G I A something. You guys know. I, it, I remember. I don't remember
0: where I heard the correct pronunciation, but now I'm not even sure if that's the correct one. But I I think it's Giacchino.
1: He's never going to listen to this, so I'm sure he's fine. Did you notice Giacchino's score? Oh, my God, yeah. I know specifically when
0: Miles was doing his spiel about, you know, both sides of the hotel that has a score to it, um, I think even when they're introduced to the hotel and uh, Darlene and Father Flynn are walking in, the end scene where he's, you know, being absolved of his sins. It's all over the, it's, it's great. I love the score to this. I, I think it's beautifully done. Uh, and I'm actually surprised I don't have it saved to my playlist, but that will change. Cause there's a lot of, after you said that you had all the songs saved, I think I'm going to add both the soundtrack and the score. Cause they're, I think they're both practically flawless, just like a lot of this
1: movie. <laughs> Again, I don't necessarily remember the score, but I'll revisit it as well. And, um, Check it out! I remember each of the songs, and I can again sing you the lyrics to all of them. <laughs> I absolutely loved this soundtrack. But the score, when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I didn't even realize this movie has a score." <laughs> like there are Quentin Tarantino oh. movies that don't even have scores because it's all just uh, it's all just songs. Yeah, it's all just songs that he picks. Yeah. I also want to know because, like, a lot of times Quentin Tarantino will—I think probably all the time—he uh, writes the story. And chooses the songs then, like he has all these. He has like a big record collection or music collection, and he picks the songs um, way before anybody, you know, shoots or anything like that. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Either. I would. I wonder if if Drew Goddard made those same calls. I will try to find that out as well. Yeah, I need his phone and, number.
0: <laughs> wouldn't that be great?
1: It would. Be. Uh, I do. I do also remember
0: when um, when Miles is pointing out both sides when they first get to the hotel. There's a song that plays behind that both times that he tries to give the spiel. I know the second time it gets interrupted because Dakota Johnson's like, "I want this room." I fucking um, love her. Yes. Oh my god, she blows this movie away. She's so fucking amazing. In People this.
1: don't give her enough credit because she was in Fifty Shades of Grey. Okay, sure. I will. I will agree. Fifty Shades of Grey is a book. Is Not great. And I know that there were apparently some sequels to that movie that went off the edge. I never saw the sequels. I'm like stating it right now. I don't care. Come at me, bro. Uh, I think the first Fifty Shades of Grey movie is spectacular. I really, really like it. And I think it is... Due in most part to Dakota Johnson, she is a killer actress that does not get near enough credit. And it feels to me, maybe not on the exact same level, but it feels to me very much like Kristen Stewart getting slept on because of Twilight. And uh, that is a shame. Yeah, you know that woman, Kristen Stewart has a freaking French Oscar. Like she's <laughs> she is a, a a talented actress as well. You can't let one role define an actress throughout their whole career people evolve grow get a better opportunities better scripts and um, better directors and Dakota Johnson has done that I have a few questions for you I have a few answers have you seen all of the Twilight movies I've not just seen all of the Twilight movies I saw all five of them opening night <laughs> with a crowd of girls did you like them so at the time yeah like now that i've kind of um i don't really i haven't even really like revisited them but like i understood how cheesy they were but okay i'm the kind of person that can sometimes take things like as they are you know like oh okay this was never going to be shakespeare yeah. <laughs> uh but it was fun and i had a bunch of my friends with me and it was just you know I can understand that. I
0: think one scene that sticks out to me, I've not even, I don't even think I've seen the first one all the way through, but the one scene, I don't know what movie this is in, but she's like, you named my daughter after the Loch Ness monster. And that just like, I I feel like it is unfortunate that Kristen Stewart got stuck with this role because it just seems like that script just was not good at all. Uh, And that, that sucks because she is a phenomenal actress. Uh, Second question have you seen all of the Fifty
1: Shades movies? No, that's what I was saying. I haven't seen the sequels. I've only seen the first one. You've only seen the first Here's one? Here's the Would thing. The-, the first one was great, and then I heard the second. I I loved the first one. The second one, I heard people were talking about how the second one was, like, really bad. And I was like, oh, maybe not. But then, like, retroactively, I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, people said the first one was bad, and I loved it. So maybe I'll love the other ones, but I haven't seen them. Have Sunday. you read the books? No. Mm-mm. Would you do the first one for the podcast? Yes, I've tried to get you to do the first one for the podcast several times.
0: Oh my God, I don't think that is true at all. It why is would true. I have, why would I have declined that? I have no problem doing
1: that. How many times have we talked about this movie? A lot. Zero. <laughs> I've told you, you and me, like not on the podcast, but you and me. When
0: have I ever said, no, I don't want to do Fifty Shades of Grey for this podcast? Uh, I know how much you love that I movie. I don't have I it written
1: down in a book, but I... I will do it anytime. Mm, I think you're fibbing. I think you should just uh, lay down and admit that I'm always right. <laughs> okay. I don't know how – I mean I, I I do understand the trajectory of our conversation. But um, I don't know <laughs> why we're here. But yes, I'll do Fifty Shades of Grey. I, I would even do Twilight. But this particular movie right here is uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, like – I had never even heard of Cynthia Erivo before this movie came out. I haven't either. She's got uh, a Tony and a Grammy. She's got two Oscar nominations. Damn. Uh I mean, this woman probably before her career ends will probably get that EGOT. Yeah. I could see her doing some really high class HBO shows.
0: Yeah. Oh, well no, she was in um wasn't she in The Outsider? She was. Huh?
1: She plays that character that's like because she's in the the Bill Hodges trilogy. You won't watch yeah, The Outsider. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, it's not over, so maybe she'll get her Emmy from that. Hopefully, we'll
1: is see. it is it not over?
0: Really? I assume they're making a season two. Maybe not. I don't know. Well, I'm not a, sure. Actually. I mean, it's just a it's one book, so like I figured it was just a mini series. But yeah, maybe not. but like so is Handmaid's Tale. So is. I feel like there's a bunch of shows that, you know, base their first season off the book and then keep going. I don't know.
1: It's a good point. I don't even know how it did. I've heard
0: only positive things about that show. Oh, good. Which, you know, makes me want to watch it even more. But, you know, that's for a different day. But anyway. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, guys.
1: But yeah, <laughs> let's, let's good to take three. <laughs> take three. Okay, so I think the first thing I need to talk about is that Drew Goddard is so talented, and I'm worried about his career. Why? Since Bad Times at the El Royale, he has four episode directing credits on The Good Place. And then uh, he has one upcoming movie, but it's a TV movie. It's called The Untitled Nate Bargazzi Project? Bargates Project? I don't know who that is. He, it says he's a comedian, and it's like a based on his life. I don't either. Then when I go and I look at his writing credits, we have The Sinister Six, which was a deal made back when Andrew Garfield was Spider-Man. Those are, that's a group of Spider-Man villains. I doubt that he'll wind up doing that. Uh, and then he has something called Robopocalypse, which he's writing. A sci-fi story set in the aftermath of a robot uprising, and it's directed by Michael Bay. So I'm really worried... about drew goddard's career and i'm really hoping that this movie tanking didn't ruin his career i wonder what contributed to that like was it just not enough advertising i did see a video wherein he said my movies are passion projects this is something that i wanted to play very close to the vest because i wanted to save as many surprises for the big screen And that in turn makes my movies hard to market. I have only myself to blame. So I think, you know, he knows that like he's he's not making these movies for anybody but himself. Yeah. Um. At least the ones that he's directing. I think his writing work has a lot more mainstream appeal. Yeah. Obviously than his directing work does. I mean, he wrote those two movies too. But um. You know, he seems like he's directing the ones that are not as financially viable. Um, but before I kind of am all bleak with no reason, let me tell you guys what this movie made. It costs $32 million to make, and typically this is what people – there's no hard and fast rule because there are, throughout a movie's release, uh, the theater will take – the like the movie theaters, the movie exhibitors will take a different cut depending on the deal that's made, how successful the movie is, how long it plays in theaters. Um, it's normally higher the longer it plays so a movie theater has incentive to keep it in theaters right mm-hmm. typically a movie needs to make twice its budget back before advertising and all of that stuff to be declared not a failure to make something to break even basically this movie cost 32 million made worldwide 31 million 31882724 so almost 32 million didn't even come close to breaking even basically only made 17.8 million dollars here in the United States so so i assume that this wouldn't have had any like award buzz either cuz i feel like that would have boosted the sales tremendously so i think that was what they were anticipating the movie came out in the fall it was around award season certainly um had a cast and a story and an air about it that might point towards getting some awards buzz uh it didn't get any oscars that's a shame yeah so because it's 75 percent on rotten tomatoes i just started doing this and i'm going to do it for this movie as well 25 movies rated higher than it uh, of the movies that we've done and it is tied with 2014's Godzilla. Oh,
0: really? Yeah,
1: has that that also has a 75%. So we've done 25 huh. movies that are rated higher, but again, it's very subjective. Yeah. yeah. So do you want to go do you want to start talking about the movie or do you want me to or what do you want to do? You should go first. Okay, so I know we had discussed interest in finding out if the Elroy Owl was a real place or inspired by a real place. So I did some research on that and found out that while the Elroy Owl in the film was built entirely on a soundstage, there is a real resort that served as inspiration for the film. It's called the Cal Neva Resort and Casino. I guess that's how you pronounce it because it's. It, like its name suggests, it lies on the border of California and Nevada, not far from Lake Tahoe, which they reference in the movie. Mm-hmm. John Hamm's character brings up that Dean Martin sang a song about the Elroy Owl, half in California with Judy. Well, Dee Martin and Frank Sinatra were both actually partial owners of the resort, oh, and Judy Garland was one of the many famous celebrities that stayed there. So it is like – it, it was a hotel that was known for having bigger celebrities and personalities
0: Absolutely, there. and it was cut right down the middle just, just like the El Royale. Was it as like symmetrical as the El Royale was or is it sort of – Cause like the El Royale is very purposeful. It's very like split, equidistant. Like both sides are symmetrical and mirror each other. Or was it just a hotel that was just kind of on the border of both?
1: No, you could stay in on one side or the other. Uh, okay. I'm not. I didn't see as many pictures inside to know that like if the lobby was split right down the middle. But I saw that the the pool was and like gotcha. the line went through the pool. And so I, I probably. Uh, and also it burned down and then they rebuilt it very quickly so oh, wow. <laughs> i don't know if if the you know original was and but it, it's still standing it's been closed i have heard that there are actually plans to reopen it it, it apparently recently changed owners so hmm. it might be the intent to reopen it at some point but um other patrons there were like Sammy Davis Jr Janet Lee and Tony <laughs> Curtis who are uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's parents, uh, Shirley McLean, Liza Minnelli, Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, and Marilyn Monroe even stayed there the week of her death. Holy shit. Yeah. Also, like Laramie says about the El Royale in the movie, the Calnava Resort did lose its gambling license in the 60s. But he says it was something about the commission. He didn't really know the reason in the movie. But the real reason in real life is that real life mobster Stan Giancana frequented there and was even a silent shareholder. And he was banned from all Nevada casinos. And because they let him in the Cal Nevada, uh, that's what led to the issue. One of the other shareholders wanted to back out and it attracted the attention of the Gaming Commission, and they were like, nope. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Really cool place. You should look. I'll, I'll include pictures of it. it it's a really cool-looking place. It's not as cool as what the Royal looks like. but Yeah, so I did some digging in the extras
0: section of my movie file, the iTunes, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, like, every single detail of this hotel was – created like even like the fabric on the chairs was custom made the carpets the wallpaper every single decoration was custom made for this movie and like you said it was done on a sound stage like they built this hotel and that's where they shot most of it they were able to produce rain there um it was on a slant to you know allow for drainage for the rain scenes and um it's really fucking cool what they were able to do with this
1: and and like the production design and everything it's it's really really incredible Yeah, and they didn't even have to use normal set lighting. The hotel allowed for natural light to come in. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to continue with the tracking shot because I know I talked about how I wanted to discuss that and this is the
0: one where it's like all one shot
1: yeah so i saw in an interview that i'll include the link to where drew goddard says that it's about five minutes long took eight months and (laughs) hundreds of people to figure out how to pull it off and that is truly cynthia revo singing live the entire time yep 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 like 27 times that she had to go through and sing that that is absolutely crazy and that's probably the shot he's most proud of in the film as he should be that's like yeah It's breathtaking. And then later on, when Father Flynn is
0: digging up the floorboards. Can't hurry, love. That one took around 20 takes as well and was also live. Best scene in the movie. Yeah, she's just a powerhouse. She's insanely talented.
1: God, I want to watch that scene.
0: I want to watch the movie again. It was so good.
1: Can we just like do a take four? Like, let's pause this, watch the movie, and do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Just choked on my spit. Yes, I (laughs) I would do that for this movie. (laughs) I was going to cut that out until you said, oh, I just choked on my spit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Another thing that I mentioned wanting to talk about was uh, kind of a joke, but kind of like uh, I'm very curious as to if there is some sort of connection there. The Mamas and the Papas have a song called 1230 that plays in this movie, and it plays in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And both movies have like these Manson-like figures in them, and (laughs) they both take place. Again, that's another thing we didn't know. This movie takes place in 1969, and if the Richard Nixon press conference is live, then it happened late January, January 27th. So I was like, what is the connection there? Why are they – why do they seem so linked? Like I don't really know too, too much about them. And it's funny because I know a lot about the Manson stuff, but I wasn't really familiar with the Mamas and the Papas until recently. So everywhere I looked, I saw the same statement, and that was that they were at the forefront of counterculture music in the 60s. Now, counterculture of the 60s is what we're going to call it, but others may have used words like hippie. Um, I am going to say it's like hippie sounds yeah. like a word there. So Cass Elliot or Mama Cass, who was um, one of the mamas in the group, was widely known For doing what most people in that culture did, which was welcome people into her house for gatherings pretty much at all times, like an open-door policy. Uh Um, Well, doing that in California in the 60s would understandably bring you into contact with the Manson family. (laughs) And um, now, I was never able to find anything about them being, like, members But they did apparently know them well enough to be asked to witness in their trial for the defense. Thankfully, they had distanced themselves from all of that by then, and they never showed up in court. And also, there was a rumor, apparently, that when the bodies of Sharon Tate and her friends were found, the song 1230, which is the song that plays in in both movies, that that song was playing in another room in the house. Oh, shit. So, like, that's pretty fucked up. Honestly. (laughs) Now, there's also the song Hush by Deep Purple that appears in both movies as well. And I realized that and um, I didn't do any research on that. So, (laughs) but like, speaking of music in this movie, Drew Goddard considers the music in this movie to be the eighth character of the film. Like, serving as the voice that a chorus would serve in a greek play is how he describes it Mm -hmm. he said that he would pick the songs and design scenes around them and because i heard him state in another interview that he allowed the actors to improvise in places especially towards the end of the film It leads me to believe that this designing scenes around the music didn't just stop at the pre-production phase. Like, he's starting to seem like a pretty fluid director, which is surprising to me because everything I've ever seen him work on feels so uncompromising and purposeful. Yeah, and like manufactured, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and like, well...
0: but like I mean, in the not best way
1: yeah yeah like it,
0: purposeful is the right word and manicured is maybe what i was thinking of i i know what you mean though like everything has a
1: purpose and a point
0: and was exactly chosen specifically
1: yeah and you can see it too and like i i guess that would be the best of the both worlds then because like when you're flexible and agreeable but then you know that in vision and you're going to get there no matter what i think that makes you easier to work with mm-hmm. but then people know that like they're they're on a ship that's headed towards land. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not like towards land in like a way that's going to crash, like in a way that it'll (laughs) like dock and people will get to safety. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good analogy or whatever, but (laughs) I, I got it eventually. I think I
0: think it's good. So to add on to this music discussion, I saw an interview that went over the same kind of things, where you know the music was chosen specifically and was sort of you know integral to the script and the plot. When it came time to sell the script or pitch it to the studio, it came with the disclaimer that if Fox didn't want to bother or mess with buying the rights to the songs themselves, that like don't even bother buying the script because the songs were. So heavily a part of the fabric for this movie that they had to go with it, and if they didn't, then like there's no point in having a movie, so that
1: is so cool, yeah, I yeah. like that, I like that a lot. I don't think I've ever heard that happening before i mean it it <laughs> it probably is the case in other people's movies too, but like that is such a badass like move, sticking to your guns, kind of I like that a yeah. lot, I thought that was cool too, like y'all better buy the rights to these songs, yeah. <laughs> you know something i didn't realize this uh kind of jumping towards production design uh i didn't realize that while i was watching this movie and i encourage you all to look back at this too is like the intricacy and in detail when it comes to the interior of the El Royale. you had talked about how everything was like meticulously placed and designed yep. Um, but I, I love that like the California side uses warm colors like yellow and orange, and the Nevada side uses cool colors like purple and blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a stark contrast between these two sides. The idea was to make both of them feel intrinsically California and intrinsically Nevada, and I don't know if Nevada is, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Okay. So this this made me very happy. And I even went back and like was looking at this. The jukebox and the chandelier are on the line. They split – they're yeah. on the red line that splits the lobby down the middle or the, the main yep. room or whatever. They both have red. There's red in the chandelier. Obviously, the line is red. The jukebox has a red line going up it as well. And of course, the jukebox lights are typically yellow. But when it plays music – and you can actually see this, the, the time that I saw it is the first two times that Emily shoots through the mirror. The next scene, after both of those two, the first, because she does it like three times, um, the first two times it cuts to the record player and showing what's going on in that big room. And both times there's music playing and you can see that the yellow turns to blue. That's so cool. Yeah, so it's like even the jukebox is split down the middle. And I think like I it's it's so exciting
0: to us but and it seems maybe to someone who is less critical of movies that it's just like this minor detail but it really does set a mood for the movie. Like even if it's not so blatant, it is, you know, subconscious and I think that's what's so awesome about it. And kind of going back to this discussion about color, I think it goes way beyond even just the uh, the scenes. I think it, it was very much put into the costumes as well. Yeah, like the whole production design of this movie is incredible, and Darlene is pretty much always in yellow. That's that's really her color, and it was sort of meant to complement her room. It, it was sort of this hotel was built in a way that each character kind of fit into their own environment and into their own bedroom. You have Father Flynn, who's been black and white, and he's got this sort of like brown, really toned down. Bedroom, and then you have Darlene. She's in these bright yellow colors, and her her room is like flooded in purple and that kind of thing. I, I saw this somewhere in uh, in my research. I think it was in the the behind the scenes thing on the like the dvd extras or whatever when she goes to emily and rose's room when she's stealing the gun from laramie yeah it was sort of like she didn't fit in with her surroundings like it was very clear that her color palette did not match the room around her and it was very clear like she is not supposed to be there which i (laughs) thought was so so cool yeah and then you have laramie who's in this like bright plaid suit and he's loud and he's vulgar and he's like this traditional Like early 60s dad type but all of that is sort of like shed and taken off when he takes off his jacket in the room and he's in this like nice dress shirt and then he puts on the trench coat and it's sort of like it follows his character development within the story because at first you want to hate him but then he turns out to be this like it was all a facade it was all a mask Um, and then he has really like nice intentions obviously it doesn't work out for him in the end trying to save the day exactly exactly They mention that there's not red in this movie except for the line in the chandelier and the jukebox. And there's also not green until we see Darlene at the end with this beautiful green dress. And she sort of shed this, um, what's the word? This sort of, uh, like, uh, what's the opposite of confidence? Like this, this... I feel like she was so timid in the beginning and then she oh, puts yeah. on, she she's, she's on the stage, she puts on this green dress. It's fresh. It's like, she's finally blossomed and flourished and full of this new beautiful life that she's always wanted. And, um, yeah, it's just the, the, the play on colors in this movie
1: is nothing short of
0: spectacular.
1: That's really interesting because the like the only other green thing that I remember really is that her her bed rolls, like the things that she's holding under her arms. Oh, like the
0: soundproofing things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you're like right.
1: They're green and they are at first used as a construct to keep other people from hearing her sing and then she comes out at the end performing for a bunch of people. Yeah. And she's in green as well. So it's kind of like
0: I literally Uh, took this from, like, the producer's mouth. Like, if you look at the extras, that's what they came up with. But you're right. I never even really – I never thought about that. But that's a great point.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, like, the only thing I can – else I can think of that's, like, red in the movie is the phone that Rosie uses to call Billy Lee. But Mm -hmm. I think that that might have been – like, I think that that's also purposeful as well because – Rosie's the one that's like Walking on the red line Yeah yeah. You know She's hanging from the red chandelier She goes to the red jukebox She's kind of like On the middle You don't know which way she's gonna go She's Obviously She winds up going in one way But um yeah. You certainly think at first that she's the victim. I love that you brought that up in
0: take 2 about how the filmmakers were so deliberate about showing when people are respectfully like hopping over the line or stepping over the line. Yeah. And I like just to drive that home. I love those shots and I I love that it wasn't until rose and billy came into the picture where they started just stepping on it and like they weren't respectful of it at all and she's swinging on the chandelier and exactly. it's like they play with it like they feel like they're above it and they feel like they are um like it just to go along with with billy lee's cult and his ideas about um you know not following what a man sort of says. like anarchy yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah obviously i think this movie explores the concept of choice and i know that you could pretty much argue that every movie has choices that affect, you know, the plot or like, you know, choices are integral to the plot. But I think in this story in particular, I think it's about the consequences of choosing between two things. And it's, I think it's like two things specifically, like so often these characters are faced with a choice of one thing or another. Red or black. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. California or Nevada. Do you want room four or do you want room five? Like, do you pick red or do you pick black? Like, do I trust the old man with the money or do I shoot him? Do I choose to intervene and save this tied up little girl or do I do what I'm told and and stay out of it? Yeah. And I think if any of these choices were the opposite, the story would have halted, obviously. Um, like Father Flynn wouldn't have needed to drug Darlene because he would have been in the right room. Um, Laramie wouldn't have been shot, uh, which wouldn't have given... Rose, the opportunity to call Billy Lee, like if he had stayed out of it, then Billy Lee wouldn't even be in the picture. Um, And if Emily picked black, Miles would have gotten would not have gotten his redemption. And I think it's a she would have lived. Yeah, I know. I know. To move on to another subject, I read in an article that Goddard never really intentionally puts religious meaning in his work. Like it's not something that he strives for when he, when he writes something, they just kind of make their way into it organically. And I think that's odd for this movie in particular, because I feel like there's so many intentional symbols in this movie about that, that, that mirror religion. Um, This whole thing is about redemption and how making, the right choices kind of seal your fate in a way. And you have two very obvious sources of spirituality in this movie. You have someone who thinks he's God, which is Billy Lee. And you have someone pretending to be a supporter of God, which is Father Flynn. And he's faking it the whole time. And he's the one who ends up being a hero. So I don't really know what exactly that's trying to say, but I think the symbols in this movie, like there's there's crosses and all of the wooden... I don't even know what you call them like dividers I guess uh, anytime that Billy Lee has his arms out like that's super symbolic the wallpaper has crosses on it uh you know that kind of stuff oh they pray like the one thing he does with his daughter is pray yeah oh, exactly yeah yeah perfect and it's interesting because this hotel kind of symbolizes purgatory so you have these characters who all come to this one place to sort of seek uh some kind of redemption And they are forced into this space that literally straddles two completely opposing worlds. And it's really not just the core seven, you have really anyone who stayed at the hotel that is dealing with this kind of choice. Um, you know, according to Miles and the story that he's told and the people that he's come across and filmed in this hotel, like very few have made it out alive or they've died shortly after. And if you think of the movie in this way, the El Royale kind of becomes more of like a test or a trial than anything. And it makes it almost seem like it's not real. And there are a couple things that made me feel like, this like this whole thing just kind of felt a little bit off like it was it was working in this like tangential dimension i feel like in any other situation in any other movie it would be a a downside of this movie like it would be something that i would take off marks for but for some reason like i don't see these as shortcomings for this movie i find it interesting that suddenly seven people appear to a completely deserted hotel no one's in this hotel when they get there everyone is checking in at the same time on this day um like no one's using the rooms but on this particular day four people decide to check in all at once that seems a little strange to me i understand why it works it, it would not have had the same impact if we if if we knew that other people were staying you know before them i feel like their their meeting in the lobby is so paramount to the rest of the story yeah so i think it's a very important scene it's just a little bit off like that that wouldn't normally happen in real life typically I also find it interesting that when someone's murdered, specifically Laramie, no one thinks to call the police. <laughs> no one calls the police when when someone gets murdered. It's all about them trying to like it's it, it's very it's a very isolated thing. And it really it it does make this hotel feel more like a test or a game. It feels very Clue, like the game Clue, the board game Clue, and it feels almost like I coined this. It feels like an Agatha Christie video game. (laughs) You have these characters and they're all completely different from each other. They all have their own quirks, uh, their own personalities. And it's like, it's almost like a whodunit. They all have some backstory that you're not, you're not really sure about. But in the sense it is kind of like a video game because it's, it's separate from real life. Like it doesn't feel like real life. And normally I would see these things as flaws. Like these seem very much like mistakes in movies but to me it feels more like an attempt to kind of pull you into this universe and drive home that idea that this is sort of more of a hypothetical situation and that your actions and choices do have consequences and it, it made me respect it more and i i wish i had a more solid answer as to why it just works better for me and i really don't see those as flaws but um I don't know. It's just, it's so cool. It's, it's like, it's like this hypothetical situation that, that he just thrusts you in and you go along with it. Like you don't even give it a second thought and it's still, I I don't know. Does that make any sense to you?
1: Yeah, I don't, I'm totally fine with it being an allegory. I don't mind that at all. Like it doesn't necessarily have to feel like something that could have happened somewhere, even though, you know, there's definitely references of things that actually did happen. And you can definitely tell that it pulls inspiration from real life occurrences and places to be able to tell its story. It almost feels like it could have been like a parable or something. Yeah. Or like a a dream or something like, I don't know.
0: It's just, it's just like the tiniest step off from reality, but it just, it's so cool. Like it's so cool that it was able to do that. I don't know. So that was about like the bulk of my research. And one thing that I, I didn't write this down, but I feel like I should bring it up um, because Jeff Bridges seems like he's just the coolest guy to work with on set. Apparently, according to the behind the scenes, he was uh, he he always he has this very specific camera that's sort of it's like a wide lens kind of camera. I forget what it's called, um, but he takes it on to all of the sets that he films on and he just takes pictures like behind the scenes photos and he interacts with the cast and um plays games with them in between takes uh and he just seems like he's he was like the papa figure the grandpa the grandfather figure of you know all of these people and everyone was just talking so highly of him and he
1: just seems like the best I absolutely love Jeff Bridges. So do I. Mounds and mounds of respect to that man for sure. This cast is incredible. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Russell Crowe was offered the role and actually signed on, but then for some reason he had to back out and was replaced with John Hamm. Oh shit! Okay, uh, so he was he was going to play John Hamm's role, and Tom Holland turned down the role of Miles. Oh, they look
0: identical. They totally do. I don't know if you said it during take one or take two, but that actor is. Bill Pullman's son. Did you know that? No. Yeah. Oh
1: my god. Yeah, that makes me happy that you didn't know that. That is so. Oh my gosh, that makes me really happy.
0: And I want to see him in more things. You said you said that you recognize him. Yeah. He's in
1: that was going to bring that up. He's in Strangers Two, which it's not perfect, and I think I still like Strangers One for what it is more, but I think Strangers Two has a lot more going on and there's all, there's more characters and it's you know uh it takes place in a trailer park versus just like this one little house mm-hmm. um but he is in it and he's actually in like the best scene in the movie it's in the pool <laughs> anybody who anybody who knows what I'm talking about like the pool scene is absolutely breathtaking wait hold on are you saying that he's shirtless in this scene no i think he has his clothes on i Bitch. think he does have
0: his yeah Doesn't sound like a very fun pool scene. (laughs) This is probably my second favorite movie that we've done. We've done your first and second favorite movies of all time. I mean, episode wise, like maybe, maybe top three. Like I really loved our Annihilation episode. I really loved our Interstellar episode. And I really loved doing this movie too. This is one of the movies that
1: gets me like excited. I want to scream about how much I love this movie. (laughs) Let's just watch this movie again. I'd love to. Like, I don't, even, I don't even want to do anything else. <laughs> Let's just watch this movie. Again. I would. I would. I will watch this movie any minute of any day. All right. Right now. Hey, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed episode 32 of Take 3, a movie podcast as much as we did. If you're picking up what we're putting down, then please visit Take3AMP.com for more episodes, links to all of our social media, and our merch store. Also, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever the kids are calling it these days. We are quickly approaching our Season 2 finale, so if you have any ideas for Season 3, please reach out to us via Facebook or Instagram or email. I'd be happy to take credit for them. Anyway, thanks for your continued support. Stay safe and always check your motel room for tiny microphones and two-way mirrors. Oh, and I guess if you're checking, like, Bags of money stashed under the floor. That's always good.